Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2014, volume 52, number 5. My name's David Fizakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, I'm the editor-in-chief. This month we start with an editorial entitled Taxing Medicines, and we discuss two issues relating to taxes that are applied to medicines, uh, particularly in England. The first is the good old chestnut of the prescription charge, uh, and the second relates to uh, the effect of VAT on some medicines, uh, particularly those dispensed out of hospitals. Um, I wonder, James, whether whether the prescription charge issue is still a relevant one for us today. Well, I think I think it becomes more relevant for a couple of reasons, of course. First of all, we have just England now left out of all the countries making up the United Kingdom that still charge patients. Uh, this charge is going up to £8.05 from the 1st of April. And what's interesting about this is that the net price of the drugs that you get from your pharmacy is around about the £8 to £9 mark. So when you when you average out across all the prescriptions issued, it works out what the, roughly the per prescription or per item cost is about the same as the prescription charge now. It's getting to that stage now. It's changed a lot. I mean, only what even twenty years ago the the net uh, cost was almost about eleven pounds. But of course, we've lost a huge number of the branded drugs. So as a consequence of that, actually the price of drugs has been dropping over this time, whilst, of course, the prescription charge has been rising. And so for a particular patient who might be on two or three, a simvastatin or an aspirin or an omeprazole, something quite common, they'll be paying £8 something for each prescription, and yet the actual cost of a month worth of those drugs may be about a pound? Maybe a little as a pound for each one. Yeah, and of course it's not the same. There are other drugs like things like um, inhalers, which still can be very expensive. I mean, your average inhaler for an asthmatic, the combination inhaler can be as much as £35 each. But for a lot of drugs now, the net ingredient cost is far less than the prescription charge. However, there are a lot of people who don't pay. Indeed, in fact, I think 90% of people don't pay. And within that, there are certain categories who are exempt, so by age, if you're pregnant, and then that whole rump of other conditions, chronic conditions, which hasn't really changed over the years. No, I think somebody in 1948 worked out what things could be treated in 1948 and said, well, we'll make them exempt from prescription charges, although, of course, actually, no, it's 51, wasn't it, when the actual prescription charge, I think, came in. Um, but that list has not been changed since then, apart from adding cancer onto it just recently. So as a consequence, there are some real anomalies, whereas if you're diabetic, you won't pay as long as you're being treated with drugs. But if you're hypertensive, you will. And so what? what's our beef? Well, I think our beef is that it's a tax on illness and it's uh, inequitable and it, it makes about £450 million for the government uh, a year and you can compare that to the total drugs cost. That's drugs management of about £7.9 billion. So it's about a 15th of the total cost of the drug budget. So yes, it would be a loss of revenue, but from what we can see, it doesn't really make much sense any longer to have England as the only country left with a charge and this peculiar list of exclusions for those people who don't pay and then of course we have the complication that you can buy prepayment certificates on top of that 
there is a bureaucracy associated with it, which also has the charge. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the VAT issue. This is a really weird one, and I, I hadn't understood this, but if you are a hospital and you dispense drugs from your dispensary to patients and outpatients, you are VAT'd by 20%. There's a 20% VAT charge on those drugs, which is clearly uh, quite a significant tax on hospital outpatients pharmacies. So this is one of the reasons why there's been quite a drive to try and shift this sort of prescribing out to GPs. And, of course, that in itself creates problems about communication you know does a gp feel confident enough to prescribe on the basis of a handwritten note from the outpatients all those sorts of things come horribly to mind and uh, it's just a very odd anomaly i suspect and that applies across the uk irrespective of, of country so okay so it's time time for some some changes to tax. indeed yes we're going to bang the drum and uh, time to get rid of the prescription charge okay thank you very much so our first main article this month uh, is review of a new drug, nalmefine, for alcohol dependence. It's an interesting concept that this is the first drug licensed for use in people who are still drinking. We've got other drugs that you can use in people who have already stopped drinking, but this is the first one licensed for people who are carrying on drinking. It's about harm reduction rather than absolute abstinence. Um, so what do we know about it? So this is nalmefine. It's an opioid modulator, and as you say, it's a, a little unique in that it's not like a camprosate or disulfiram or naltrexone, which is designed to be given to people to stop them drinking once they've stopped or once they've become abstinent. This is a, a drug to be used before that happens to help them stop. And so they take it on an ad hoc basis. So you don't take one every day. You take one on the days you are concerned that you might drink on. And uh, this seems to have some beneficial impact on both the number of high drinking days that you might have and on your total intake. So clinical trials support, obviously it's licensing, they have looked at people who are still drinking and seen what happens when you give them nalmorphine or give them placebo. But as I understand it, there was also psychosocial support provided to all patients? Well, this is this is the issue. This is um, quite important. In all the studies that we have, and we have very few, but in all the studies there was uh, psychosocial support for these patients to help them as well with their addiction. And therefore we don't know how well this drug works, if you like, without that extra support. And I think as part of the licence, it's advocated that you have that psychosocial support available. And... The absolute benefit that we saw in the trials? Well, the absolute benefit was not great. We saw a reduction in the total number of, of heavy days drinking by a small amount. It's about one and a half units of alcohol a day was sort of the reduction compared to placebo in alcohol consumption per day in the trials. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what the clinical benefit of that is. Um, I think models have been used to look at cost effectiveness, but it's very difficult to entirely interpret what that means to the person uh, you're dealing with. The other big issue with this drug is like so often uh, with licensing trials, they excluded patients who had a history of psychiatric illness and they excluded patients with liver enzyme abnormalities. Uh, so this was quite a select group of patients. So how generalizable it is to, our, to the, the standard population that you would see 
in general practice difficult to know it's difficult to know and the other thing i think is always the issue with these drugs that you use and i can think of uh drugs we've used to stop smoking as well is what do you do for the patient who comes back after he's had his license treatment says well i've not managed can i have some more and you know how long or i think this is a, a difficult area for us to develop a clinical service for and it's going to take a bit of working out by ccgs and, and overall no outcomes other than the surrogate ones of heavy drinking days and alcohol intake. So nothing on health outcomes for the individual patients. No, nothing on, I don't know, um, injuries, liver disease, anything like that. No, nothing at all. Okay, so interesting, but we need more. Indeed. Okay, thank you. A quick over- overview of our, our second article, Cytochrome P450 and in drug interactions. We looked at this some years ago and gave a quick overview. We thought it was time to refresh it and see whether anything has changed in the world of cytochrome P450 enzymes. A couple of key points that we highlight. So there are a number of areas we cover. Um, first of all, the pharmacogenetics genomics of this. So we're increasingly realizing that variations in genes of individuals has an impact on their cytochrome activity. And I think that will be important in the future. We talk about the relevance of P-glycoprotein, which is another drug transporter protein that's found in the gut as well as elsewhere. And that can explain why sometimes drugs don't behave quite as you expect them to, despite knowing that they have a cytochrome action or or, uh, induction or inhibition of of cytochrome action. Um, And lastly, the other interesting thing is that we're discovering that certain diseases have an impact on the activity of cytochrome uh, isoenzymes and therefore things like inflammatory conditions particularly can impact and therefore alter your the way you metabolize drugs whilst your disease is active. So as ever, the more we know, the more complex it gets. As the more we know, the more questions we have to answer. Excellent. Time for another article in 10 years' time. And finally, let's let's just choose a couple of items from Select. Let's start with a safety warning. Uh, concerns over domperidone and the European Medicines Agency have done a review of possible guidance in terms of changing its recommendations. What What have they said so far? Well, I think it's one of these issues where if I was a student at medical school these days and I was asked for a possible complication of a drug, in my day it was you'd say it causes diarrhoea and vomiting, and these days you would say it might affect the QT interval. And uh, domperidone is one of these drugs where they are concerned it carries a small increased risk of QT interval prolongation, which might lead to arrhythmias. So they've suggested putting additional restrictions on domperidone as a result of that really Um, more or particularly an issue for those over 60 and they're suggesting which I think is quite interesting that it should no longer be used for conditions such as bloating or heartburn and I think domperidone had become one of those drugs that people were using as a last resort in cases of reflux uh, both in adults and in children. So risk benefit would suggest that for a drug that perhaps hasn't got a huge evidence base in those conditions, the risks are going to outweigh the benefits. Precisely, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, St John's Wort, an old friend, we have reviewed it from time to time, concerns over its use with contraceptives. Yes, this is an interesting case where uh, the MHRA received two yellow cards on women uh, who've become pregnant using uh, hormone-based contraception and 
when they've started taking St John's wort. So it's just a timely reminder that these herbal remedies can have an impact on your drugs, uh, sometimes in a quite catastrophic way. And of course, we've, we've in the past, we've, we've talked about the regulation of herbal remedies. And the, the process now is that they should have a traditional herbal regulation process or should have gone through that process. And therefore, if they have been through that process, they will have an information leaflet and that should give you the necessary warnings. Correct. If you find products that haven't been through this process, you may not get that. That's the problem. If you go onto the internet and simply want to buy your St. John's water at the cheapest price and you happen to buy it from somewhere where it hasn't gone through that process yet, then it may not contain that warning and you may be totally unaware of the issues. And this is one of the problems with the THR system is that uh, my understanding of it is that as new things come through, they're processed through it, but they're still able to sell off existing products without the information leaflets. So a good, good warning to be aware of, aware of those. And finally, a brief piece looking at use of combination inhalers and the effect of much higher doses of inhaled steroids as a result of moving to a combination product. What was the basis of this? Yeah, this was an interesting study based in Scotland where they looked at... Uh, 40 or so GP practices and looked at patients who had been started on a combination inhaler with an inhaled corticosteroid and a long-acting beta agonist or LABA as it's now often shortened to. And what they found was that a significant number of these patients when they had that shift actually had quite a a step up in the dose of their inhaled corticosteroids. So the average dose prior to the uh, step up was about 600 micrograms per day and that was uh, pumped up to about a thousand or thousand plus after the in in terms of beclomethasone equivalent that's right they they standardize everything to beclomethasone and just to remind you what that means is that if uh, fluticasone is thought to be twice as potent for example than beclomethasone so you would double that up to make it beclomethasone equivalent so they standardised the doses, compared the before, before and after, and they found there's this considerable step. Now, you might expect some step up, because if you're having to control non-controlled asthma, you might expect that. But those sound quite large increases. Yes, and I think, and I think, well, I mean, I don't know what to make of it, too. They found that actually about a fifth of patients had no history of taking an inhaled corticosteroid at all. Does that mean that their database wasn't very good, or does it mean that some GPs were starting patients on the combination from the off. That's always in situations where it would be nice to sort of clarify what was going on there. But there does seem, when you consider that we do worry, doses above 1,000 micrograms a day is when we start to worry there may be systemic effects of these drugs. And I just worry that perhaps this study indicates that some GPs weren't aware of the potency or the dosage equivalents between certain types of uh, inhaled steroids and that might be something if you're not sure yourself it could be something you look at in your practice to see if you've got that straight so if nothing else i mean a lot of detail obviously in the, in the paper but a useful reminder that have a look at your prescribing of combination products and just check whether the doses are in line with signed bts guidance or whether inadvertently we're moving to much higher doses and actually not stepping people away from those that's absolutely right it's quite timely because bts sign guidance for asthma is just being uh rewritten and it's out in draft at the moment the step system is still in place but it's a timely moment to think about whether you need to just check you've got the doses right particularly as we've also got some beclometasone inhalers which are more 
potent than others, you know, things like QVAR, for example. So no inhaler is exactly the same as another, and we have to be careful about that. Again, another complex area. Thank you very much. Thank you. To read these and any other articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com.